1 Peter chapter 1. And we'll be reading verses 1 to 16. But our focus today is on verses 13 to 16. But I want to read the, the, big, the verses before that to put those three verses, those four verses into context. Peter's such an encouragement. There's no doubt about it. He, when he writes, we can feel uh, encouraged by his faithfulness and the faithfulness of the people he's writing to and the, the, uh, the dangers he's warning them of in that pagan, uh, in their pagan uh, generation. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of, of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of, of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, sorry, may be found to praise, honour and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, <coughs> you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesies of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating the, when he sorry who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us. They were ministering to the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Therefore, gird up the lines of your mind and be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your, in your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. Lord Father, as we look into your word and look at this matter of personal holiness, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would reveal that truth to us. And Lord Father, uh, apply that truth to our ministries, each one of us, upon this earth. Oh Lord, give us grace to understand. Give us a zeal to look to you. Give us a, a zeal, Father, to be obedient to your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the forests of um, northern Europe and Asia, lives a, lives a little animal called an ermine, known for its expensive, dense, silky white, snow white, fur in the wintertime. 
In the summertime, its fur is brown. But in the wintertime, it goes pure white. And you will see coats made at ermine. Those coats are worth somewhere between $150,000 to $200,000. Because the ermine is, is, a, uh, is part of the weasel family, and they're only about this big. There's not a lot of fur on them. But the ermine coats are particularly prized because they're so warm. You will see them usually on kings and queens. And if you look carefully at the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II, you, you would see that she wore an ermine coat with black, the black in it, which is the tail. So it's a very, uh, it's a very white fur. But the, but the ermine acts in a very interesting way. It is instinctively protects its white coat against anything that would soil it. And so hunters take advantage of this unusual trait of the ermine. They don't try and get a snare to catch it or anything like that, but instead they find where its burrow or its house is. And usually uh, it's in a, um, a rock or a hollow or in an old tree, and they smear that entrance and that burrow with mud. Then the hunters set their dogs out. They find and chase the ermine. The frightened animal flees towards its home, but it won't enter in because of the mud. It won't enter in because of the mud. And that's how they catch these ermine. It is, rather than soil its white coat, it prefers to be trapped and captured. For the ermine, purity is more precious than life. My question for you today is, how important is your purity? How important is your holiness to you? And I want to speak to you about practical holiness. I know that might seem stuffy and boring, but it's obvious to Peter that he didn't feel it was at all. What we just read to him, being holy is being like God. And that's most exciting in this world, isn't it? Holiness means being so much like God that we bring a change to the world. People we talk to often think this subject is dull and they don't really understand what it means. We've all known at least one person whose life radiates God in such a way that we're drawn to them. Almost always those people are filled with a kind of contagious joy. They were like God, they were filled with joy. What a fantastic combination. I remember reading about David in, in Chronicles 16, where he says, I worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. What does that really mean? Maybe that's our problem. Holy people have holy joy. They enjoy life because they are, they are full of God. Maybe the people around us have seen us in our religion. But maybe they haven't seen enough of God in us and not that much joy. You may well ask me, well, why is he preaching on holiness when we only too well know what God expects from us? Well, if you're like me, you'll probably forget it by tomorrow. The message of holiness can easily leak away from us. But, brothers and sisters in Christ, we must never let that go. By our fall in Adam and Eve, we not only lost favour with God, but also we lost the purity of our nature. And therefore we need to be both reconciled to God 
and renewed in our inner man. Remember what we just read in Hebrews. With our personal holiness, no man shall see the Lord. God's nature is that unless we are sanctified, there can be no communion between him and us. We read in Matthew 5. None but the pure of heart will ever see God. Therefore, there must be that renovation of our souls whereby our minds and our affections and our wills are brought into harmony with God. There must be that impartial compliance with the revealed will of God, which issues from both faith and love and abstinence from evil. There must be that directing of all our actions to the glory of God by Jesus Christ, according to the gospel. There must be a spirit of holiness working within our heart so as to sanctify our outward actions. I read a comment by that famous writer Jerry Bridges. He says, It is time for us Christians to face up to our responsibility for holiness. Too often we say we are defeated by this or that sin. No, we are not defeated, he says. We are simply disobedient. It would be good if we stopped using that term of terms of victory and defeat, I think, and describe it as our progress in holiness. Rather, we should use the terms obedience and disobedience. And he, of course, Peter is writing to many who had come from pagan backgrounds, living in a pagan society where there was a great pressure to conform to the pagan beliefs. So Peter here calls his readers to holiness in the light of the coming of Jesus Christ and the holy character of God who calls us to salvation. So first of all, let's look at God's holiness. What does it mean when Scripture says God is holy? Well, you can't go past, I think, uh, there's plenty of good passages, but one that really stirs me up is in Isaiah chapter 6. The first three verses. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So just imagine that, that place in heaven. Above it stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And this is what Isaiah is seeing in this vision. And one, this is talking about the seraphim, called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And this may well be the greatest attribute that God has. You see, holy, 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 three times it's repeated. In the Jewish language, something that is mentioned twice is putting the greatest emphasis that can be on that. But when you, and you often see that when Jesus is speaking, he says, truly, truly, or verily, verily, because he was about to say something that was of supreme importance. But now think of holy, holy, holy. Three times. And it's, and, it's, and it's mentioned entirely in the Bible. The earth is full of his glory. Another way perhaps to say that is absolute perfection. God is unlike any other. His holiness is the very essence of his otherness. The way he's different from all of us. His very being is completely absent even of a trace of sin. This is what we think about when we think about the holiness of God. 
He is high above any other. No one can be compared to him. His holiness pervades his entire being and shapes his attitudes, his attributes. His love is a holy love. His mercy is a holy mercy. His anger and wrath are holy anger and wrath. And yes, these are difficult con- concepts to, to, to grasp, but so it is, it is to grasp the entirety of God himself. And there are two terms in the Greek here, in 1 Peter, that can be translated uh, as holy or holiness. Kadosh and hagios. These, stray, these carry a strong secondary connotation of, uh, connotation of moral purity. But moral purity is not first and foremost what Scripture is talking about. Instead, the most basic meaning of those words is to be set apart or dedicated, dedicated to God, to belong to God. And God says to the, the Israelites in Leviticus, I'll walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. It means that holiness, a quality of God's character, is to be shared by us. We are his, are his people. We are to own his character in that respect. Therefore, before we consider any matter of, of morality, biblical holiness describes a unique relationship with God that God has established and desires with his people. That's what he, just, he established with the nation of Israel. That's what he establishes with believers. Unless we rightly, sorry, Unless we rightly understand and affirm the primacy of this relationship, we fall into the inevitable trap of reducing holiness to mere morality. That is, of being good or bad or a code of conduct. But before we're ever called to be good, we are called to be holy. So let us now see what our holiness should look like. We've looked at the standard. Let's see what our holiness should look like. I read an interesting example of uh, this, uh, of uh, being one thing and doing another, or doing one thing and being another. A Sydney driver's licence examiner told about a teenager who had just driven an almost perfect test. He made his only mistake. He said to the examiner, when he stopped to let me out of the car, after breathing, breathing a sigh of relief, he exclaimed, I'm sure glad... I don't have to drive like that all the time. It's an interesting example, isn't it? But I think it's a perfect. Do you put on a good front when you know someone is watching? But the rest of the time you let down your standards. Is there much difference between you and those in the world except that you go to church a little more? What does it mean then for us to be holy? When God told Israel to be holy, Leviticus he was instructing, the, instructing them to be distinct from other nations by giving them specific regulations to govern their lives. He says in, in, again in chapter 11 of Levit- Leviticus, For I, the Lord your God, sorry, for I am the Lord your God, you shall therefore consecrate yourselves and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God, you shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. And of course, Peter quotes that here in, in 1 Peter. But here in Leviticus, Egypt is represented uh, as sin. And the people of, of 
Israel coming out of her, coming out of that sin. And of course, we are reminded here that we were brought out of sin by the blood of the Passover Lamb of God, the Lamb's blood that was allowed death to pass over the Israelites. We were brought into God's kingdom by the blood of, by the blood of Christ. And that is why God refers to the coming out of the land of Egypt to being holy, which is why God follows the statement, you shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Israel was God's chosen nation, and God set them apart from all other people. They were his special people, and consequently they were given standards that God wanted them to live by, so the world would know they belonged to him. However, when Peter repeats these words in in these verses in 1 Peter, he's talking specifically to believers, to us. He says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. We've already read that God is holy, so the command for us is also to be holy. Not one of us is perfect or holy, but we are perfectly forgiven and made the very righteousness of Christ. But here Peter talks about our conduct, that it should be holy. This means our lives should reflect the holiness of God. For we are his children, and children are supposed to imitate their parents. Hopefully not all the parents' bad habits, but imitate their parents. So we are to imitate our God. We are his children. We are his heirs. So why we are required to be like him. But we know we'll never be completely holy in this life. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive to live holy lives. As I said, the word holy here means to be separate, to be set apart from the world unto the Lord. When applied to God, it, it points to his transcendence, that he is above and beyond his creation in such, in such a way as to be distinct from it. So we need to be living by God's standards and not the world's. You see, God isn't calling us to be perfect, but to be distinct from the world. And because we are separated from the world, we need to live out that reality in our day-to-day lives, which, which is what Peter's telling us how to do now. He says there in verses 13 and 14, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace, grace that is brought to you by the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. What does that mean? It's a metaphor to suggest that we need to be in preparation for a fierce and intense conflict to come. Gird up means to lift yourself up and get ready. Like a soldier girds himself up, gets ready for battle. We've got a battle on our hands. The Greek text there has two commands. Firstly, rest or fix your hope and be holy. So the sense here is in, in, this, in this verse 13 is girding your minds for action, keeping sober or keeping alert, fix your hope completely on the grace being brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Thus the command is to have a determined focus on the grace that will come to you when Christ returns. Preparing your minds 
as we say, fasten your seatbelt, roll up your sleeves. Peter's asked us to prepare for a vigorous and sustained spiritual exertion. That's why it's, it's not an easy task. We need to act. And why? It tells us in Hebrews chapter 12. We are to pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see God. No unholy thing will ever enter heaven, nor will anyone without holiness ever see God. And Revelation talks about this in chapter 21. Nothing unclean will enter in, in, will enter it, talking about the new Jerusalem, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So when God calls us to holiness, he means that we are to be set apart from the world unto God, separate from all sin. But since sin dwells in the very core of our being, as we saw in this thing for the kids, because we're fallen creatures, how can we ever hope to be holy? How can we be holy while still being sinners? The moment we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Saviour, we are positionally sanctified or set apart from God. We're in that position. Then we must be progressively sanctified by growing in holiness. That sounds nice and simple, doesn't it? But the process will not be complete until we're in the body. Or sorry, complete as long as we're in the body, still in this body. We must actively work at it. As Paul says in Galatians, he says, Walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And again in Romans he says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We also have that wonderful promise in 1 John 3. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it's not yet been revealed to us what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, and we shall see him as he is. That verse has always been a tremendous encouragement for me to persevere. When we meet the Lord, we will be perfectly sanctified, made completely like him. He says in 2 Corinthians, For he made us, made him who knew no sin, be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's what we need to look forward to. But how do we pursue it? What's our pursuit of personal holiness? As I said a moment ago, the New Testament leaves no doubt that we, having been called to holy living, pursue peace with people and holiness, without which none will enter heaven. He also says in, in that same chapter, For they indeed for a few days chastened us, that's talking about our parents, as seemed the best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Here we are told that God actually chastens us for our benefit. It's, it's not a uniform, holiness is not a, a uniform that we can just put on. Although holiness is to be reflected in our appearance, as I said, it's not a uniform. So over the years, I've come to see holiness as a very practical issue in my life. As I try and weave my way through temptations and sins, it's a very practical issue, one of the most practical issues I have to face in my life, every minute of every day. However, there's four things I'd like us to note. Firstly, when God says he wants us to be holy as he is, what he is really challenging us to do 
is to allow him to, to make us alive as he is. We're talking about a practical personal, personal holiness. And kids, you can't rely on the personal holiness of your parents. Holiness is a me thing. Like our relationship with God. You can't rely on the relationship your parents have with God. You have to have a personal relationship with God. It's a practical holiness. It's not a punitive or restrictive one. Many, many people think that about holiness, they think about the things that Christians cannot do. But when we start focusing on the things that we cannot do, we run the risk of, of failing to see the things that we are to do. David said in Psalm 84, No good thing will he, talking about God, withhold from them who walk uprightly. You see, God holds, doesn't hold back on anything that's good for us as believers. He only restricts us from what is harmful. So when we talk about practical holiness, we're talking about a state of mind and a state of heart. They've got to go together. The Holy Spirit works in, works in our conscience. He works in our heart. They go together. We're not just talking about a set of restrictions. And Paul, when he talk, in 2 Corinthians, he's talking about unequal yoking. He concludes that in the first verse of chapter 7. He says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all, of all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Who in his right mind would not want to get rid of all filthiness and flesh? You see, this is not restrictive. This is liberating. He turns us into a person that is close to God. We desire to get rid of those things, to shun those things, that filthiness of flesh and the spirit. Secondly, many painful things happen to each of us. Often we can become bitter because of those experiences. So these are things that affect our, our stand, our heart when it comes to our hearts and minds when it comes to, to holiness. God uses the process of sanctification through the work of the Holy Spirit to lead us back through these experiences through prayer and meditation. And finally, the anger and pain is drained from them. And we see these experiences in healthy and holy ways. When we are being chastised by God, it is painful. The chastisement can range from really tough to really light, but it's designed to turn us back to him. How often, when we are being tested and tried, that we do the last thing, the last thing we do is turn to God. We try and solve it with our own worldly ways, our own worldly thoughts, when our first thing should be to turn to God. Yes, we know that there is nothing healthy or holy about many of life's painful experiences and hardest losses. They are not holy and they even, may even be evil, but they are some of the most difficult times in life for us to manage. We've all been through those difficult times and the difficulty in managing a managing trial. Still, God uses these experiences to sanctify us to make ourselves... Because what, what does he do? His spirit says, turn to me and I will give you rest. Turn to me and I will show you the way through. That's, the, that's, that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to turn to him and rely on him. 
If we love him through these things, he makes all things work together for our good. We see that in Romans, that wonderful verse in Romans 8.28, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Sometimes that's hard to see. And you can't walk up to a person who's going through a severe trial and just quote them that verse. It can be most discouraging. It's like walking up and saying to a person in trial saying, I know how you feel. But you help people work through that. You help through your own experiences. I've been through this difficulty. Can I help you through this difficulty? But keeping in mind that, that promise from Romans 8.28. But the secret to all this is loving God through all these things. Thirdly, there can be a tendency on our part to think that if we are really like the Christians we ought to be, we will never sin. And we do not like to acknowledge our sins, especially when we are in the presence of other Christians. But we can never really grow in holiness with that kind of attitude. God will help us grow into his, into his perfection. He does not want us to pretend to be there already. Healthy believers are aware of God's holiness and their sinfulness. We know, I know, that if I say I have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I deceive myself if I say that. Therefore, a healthy view of holiness and a healthy view of ourselves will force us to acknowledge our own sinfulness and to be honest about it. Unfortunately, I think sometimes we create a climate where people get the impression that if we are honest about our sins, we must see ourselves as worthless. No, we're not worthless. We're just unworthy. We're not worthless because we've been bought by the power, we've been bought into God's presence by the power of Christ. That wasn't worthless. We're just unworthy. We know the price of redemption. It's wrong to say we are worthless. We're just unworthy at that time. We desperately need the cleansing sacrifice of his son Jesus Christ to keep our relationship with him, with God, healthy and strong. And fourthly, when I'm making progress in my personal pursuit of holiness, it will be evidenced by my attitude towards other people. I will see them in preference to myself. These are questions I want, to ask, want you to ask yourselves. When we learn to be honest about our sins, then we realise how indebted we are to God's grace. And that changes the way we see other people so that we do not pretend to be holier than them. Another way of knowing God is bringing us into holiness is that we desire to cooperate with our brothers and sisters in Christ and be generous towards them. We no longer want to compete with them. So my question to you is, so where, do you, where are you in the pursuit of holiness? How healthy is the state of your heart and mind? The Lord Jesus Christ wants to sanctify you. He wants to help you lay aside the unclean and unhealthy things which you have allowed to occupy your mind. So why don't you surrender them to Jesus today? Giving them to him will leave you with a feeling of fresh cleansing and freedom. We are right to be frightened of evil, so we should think, stop thinking about... Uh, how they can defeat us. We should stop thinking we can defeat our fears 
by trying a bit harder. Let us admit to the Lord that we cannot save ourselves and asking for help. We'll trust that he can save us. Pray through your fears, one by one, naming them as honestly as you can. Of course, children, covenant children, if you're not a believer, then you're not clothed in Christ's righteousness and holiness because your heart and mind are fully polluted by the devil and his angels. You have no hope of satisfying God's just requirement to be holy when you come into his presence on the judgment day. You are condemned. There's some staggering implications in this, what I've just been talking about. I've realised that holiness must be of extreme importance to God because he mentions it some 611 times in Scripture. In fact, 80 times in the book of Leviticus. Today, I'm probably speaking to some whom God is calling to repent of sin and put their trust in Jesus Christ as their Saviour. I pray, as a congregation, we pray that for our covenant children. Or maybe speaking to others who are faking the Christian life outwardly, but inwardly, you're not living in holiness. Or maybe speaking to others who have fallen outwardly. But the solution is the same for all. Turn to God from your sin and appeal to him for a clean conscience and an obedient heart based on the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for you. God, though he's altogether holy and exalted, condescends to dwell with those who humble themselves before him. As long as our ideas of holiness are limited to doing certain things and not doing other things, we can go through our entire lives just obeying the rules or at least to maintain the appearance of doing so. We must deal with the far more fundamental questions. Who am I? To whom do I give my first love and loyalty? God's call to be holy is a radical, all-encompassing claim on our lives, our loves and our very identities. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ requires nothing less than death to our fallen, egocentric selves in order that we might live in and for him. To be holy means that we are and all we have belongs to God, not ourselves. That every aspect of our lives is to be shaped and directed towards God. Be holy because I am holy, says the Lord. Holiness holiness is not primarily about moral purity. It's primarily about union with God in Christ, sharing in Christ's holiness. It's secondarily about a life in grateful service to God and others. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for that wondrous comfort which faith is able to proclaim. We thank thee for the victory which is ours in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to give our first love and loyalty to you, Lord, in the midst of our trials, exercising personal holiness in our ministry upon this earth. We praise you, Father, for defeating the evil, the devil at the cross. And know that our risen Saviour, Jesus Christ, will rid the world of sin when he returns. May we have confidence in, that, in our faith, that our faith will see us through to being perfectly united with you, a holy God, and grant that our hope might be put in Christ alone. All these things we pray through Christ our Lord.